And I also do all, uh, want to uh, encourage you to come on, on the 30th for the, um, the time of worship, the, uh, the night of worship, which we do every fifth Sunday of, of the month, so I have five Sundays, and uh, January is, is, uh, is one, so we're going to be doing that on the 30th. And, um, of course, we'll do it whenever the Lord wants us to, and that's a good thing, too. So it doesn't have to always be just the fifth Sundays, but those fifth Sundays, we will do that. Well, this uh, morning, I'd like for you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. As we continue on in our study of the book of Genesis, as you're turning there, I, I do want to mention, I know there may maybe many of you here for the first time. If you are, by the way, welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's so good to have you with us. By the way, if you are here for the first time and, and you have an extra hand, even though you're turning to Genesis chapter 6, just kind of raise it up so we can acknowledge you today for being here with us for the first time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Blessing. Blessing to have you. And we hope that your time here will be a blessing. We have been in the book of Genesis now since uh, January of 2010. That was last year. And uh, we spent a good amount of time in the first five chapters. Uh, this year we began Genesis chapter 6. And, um, and once again, we're taking our time to get through some of the more uh, controversial passages of Scripture. Uh, I mentioned from the very beginning that the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are probably the most uh, crucial chapters to know and understand because these are the most attacked uh, chapters of the Bible. The first 11 ver uh, chapters, I should say, are attacked not only by the evolutionists and scientists and atheists and agnostics and just about everybody else and all those bandwagons, but it's even attacked by liberal theologians in the church that uh, would say that most of what we find in chapters 1 through 11 are just legend and stories and uh, but not really truth but given just so that we can be encouraged by God well God is not a God of lies he is a lie. he's a God of truth and so if we believe Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 which is how we began this study a year ago if we believe the first verse of the scripture in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth if we believe the first four words in the beginning God then we, can be, then we can believe all of the words that follow those first four words. Because God is who he says he is. And if he said that he created the world in six 24-hour days, then I can believe that. Because our God is a great God. And so, we see that uh, from our studies in Genesis to where we are today, a lot has happened. And man has fallen into sin, and uh, we've dealt with the sin issue in chapter 3. And then as man began to multiply, uh, there were those that followed the line of Cain as Cain set out on his own away from God, and there were those who followed Cain. God raised up a new line after Abel had been killed through the son named Seth, and the line of Seth. But we come to chapter 6, and if we have the first 11 chapters being the most controversial and most attacked, Chapter 6 is really at the very center of that attack. So we look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. We're going to read them again, as we did last week, and then uh, continue to kind of plod our way through this, not, not in a bad sense, but we're plowing our way through this so we can dig deeper into what God's Word says. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, which means that they were 
attractive and beautiful. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Shall we pray? Father, as we continue on in the book of Genesis, we pray for the leading and guiding of your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Spirit upon us, Lord, this morning. Father, so that we might gain your wisdom and insight into these particular verses. We realize, Lord God, that the content of this is is quite uh, controversial. But we realize also, Lord God, that your word is true. And therefore, we want to see how your word supports not only itself, but makes it clear, Lord God, that the reason why we find ourselves in such great spiritual trials and spiritual battles is because the conflict continues. And where there had been gross wickedness in God's creation from the very beginning, we see that even to this day. So help us to understand these things as we look to the day of Christ's return. As we look to the day of Jesus and his approaching, Father, that we see the realization of why we're in these chapters and why this is so important to us. We ask that blessing of your spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we looked at the first two verses of this passage last week, and we discovered that there are a couple of views that that many in the church hold to on on this passage. particular passage. But from our study last week, and I, I mentioned that I had thrown out a lot of bones and I decided that, you know, it was important to have the bones out there, but we're going to put the meat on it today, and that's what we're going to, to do. But we had asked a, a few per, a pertinent questions in light of the subject that we were considering, the subject being what was taking place in the days of Noah. And, and the questions were, were in this particular manner. Think, and think very carefully about the questions. Why was God angry enough to wipe out almost all of the earth's population? Why was God angry enough to, to almost wipe out all of the earth's population with the great flood? Would he have done that simply because sinners of one line were intermarrying with sinners of another line and producing more sinners? Or was the situation much more serious than that? Had something gravely unnatural happened in the midst of a sinful and cursed world to cause the Lord to bring about that global flood? Or was there something much more serious? And then we need to ask ourselves the question this morning, why should these things be important for us to study today? Well, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament very simply stated why we're to deal with the truth of these matters. Well, Jesus said it best, of course. He always says everything best. But in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 39, Jesus said this, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that... 
Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. I would say that's an important reason why we need to be looking at the days of Noah. Because Jesus said, as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And we're looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. And then Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18-20, through 20, he said, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, by the way, I want you to keep a little bookmark here in 1 Peter chapter 3. As a matter of fact, I hope you have enough fingers because I'm going to give you a lot of bookmarks. So you're going to have to use all your fingers practically. But, but he said, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Keep that in mind. Notice, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So even Peter mentions the days of Noah. While the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And then think about what Peter then says in his next letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, because he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, stop there for just a moment and, and think about this. Peter refers in chapter 1 to the flood and to Noah, and that, of course, is referring then to the judgment that came upon the world in Noah's day by water. Of course, we know that after the flood came, there was a sign given by God as a sign of a covenant that he would not destroy the earth once again with floods, you know, with a, with a massive flood of that nature. So we do know that there is a coming judgment but it won't be done with water. It's going to be done with fire. So we see then that Peter is now referring again to something that's going to happen at the coming of Christ. Remember, as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore, he goes on to say, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct or conversation and godliness? There's the reason why we're studying the book of Genesis now and why we're studying in particular Genesis chapter 6. That seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation or conduct and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. But notice this. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. As believers in Jesus Christ, you know, we're, we're not looking for, you know, to, to be able to see on this earth, you know, all of this destruction and all of this, uh, this judgment. We're looking for the coming of Christ. We're looking for the... For the for the promise of, of not only the new heaven and the new earth, but the new Jerusalem where, where, where righteousness will dwell. And a new earth, by the way. So what was happening then in the days of Noah? And previous to Noah's birth? What was happening? Well, sin was not only increasing, sin was abounding. And not only in the line of Cain, but in Seth's line as well. You know, there, there's no thought in, in mind that uh, when we started teaching about the line of Seth, that everybody in Seth's line was going to be safe. 
Because you have to remember, everybody was born in sin. Everybody was born in sin after the fall of Adam and Eve. Therefore, every child born after them was in sin, born into sin. Given the opportunity to know God, given the opportunity to know the goodness and mercy and grace of God, but born in sin nonetheless, there was a line from Seth through Noah, from Noah to David, from David to Jesus. That line, of course, remained pure. Now, the enemy did his best to try to destroy that line time and time again. But God made it clear he wasn't going to let that line be touched. But when everybody had the opportunity that was born in the, in the godly line of Seth to stay pure and to, to be right before the Lord, it didn't happen. You know how we know that? Because how many people remained after the flood began? Only eight people. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but most of you know the story already. All those in the line of Cain were destroyed. All those in the line of Seth were destroyed. God started all over with eight people. Eight people. So, there are four people then, four men in the line of Seth, that actually stand out to show us what the Lord was preparing to do. What He was preparing to do because of this abounding of sin. This increase of sin. Those four people are the last four people mentioned in chapter 5, except for the last three names, which are the sons of Noah. We won't talk about them until later. But the last four mentioned in the genealogy, it was Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. From those four people, they show us what the Lord was preparing to do. First of all, Enoch gave testimony of the presence of God. Enoch gave testimony of the presence of God, for he walked with God. As a matter of fact, we're told that he walked, we told twice that he walked with God. He walked with God. And God took him, it says. And eventually God would take him, and he's the only one mentioned in that genealogy that does not, uh, does not die. Everyone else died. Enoch did not die. God took him. So he's, he represents that testimony of the presence of God. And then Enoch's son Methuselah would give testimony of the patience of God. For he lived longer than any other human being. 969 years. And God chose to take the man who would live the longest of all men to show how he gave opportunity for men to come to God. Because in the name Methuselah, we see when he dies, it shall come. Can you imagine whenever Methuselah caught a cold, that people were thinking, oh no, he's going to die. Because they knew that when Methuselah died, judgment would come. But God let him live 969 years. That shows the wonderful patience of God. And he certainly is a God who's not willing that any should perish. And so Methuselah represented the testimony of the patience of God. But then came the son of Methuselah, Lamech. And Lamech would give testimony of the peace of God. For he anticipated that things could not go on as they were much longer. Obviously, the sin was not just the intermarriage of, of families. That, that, you know, that was sinner with sinner, and they just produced more sinners. Something else had been, had been happening. Something of a gross and wicked nature. 
And Lamech just, just anticipated that things were going to last much longer and that God would begin to act, and especially act within the lifetime of his own son, whom he named Noah. And he named him Noah because the name Noah means comfort and rest. And so Lamech rested and found peace in the fact that God was not ignoring the wickedness of the planet, but would eventually act. And that there would be comfort and rest. And so Lamech gave testimony of the peace of God. But Noah would give testimony of the purposes of God. For we are told in Scripture that he was, in fact, a preacher of righteousness who testified to his generation of the coming judgment. There was a judgment to come. And Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We're told that in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5. By the way, here's another finger to put in uh, as a bookmark. Second Peter 2, verse 5. Because we have to come back to this verse. And spared not the old world. God did not spare the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, notice, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So now we go back to with the Holy Spirit and pick up the thread of this wickedness that formed a black background on the tapestry of the time. And the account of the growing lawlessness of Noah's day begins with a great apostasy. It begins with a great apostasy. Now, going back to verses 1 and 2, which we looked at uh, somewhat carefully last week, we'll, we'll build upon what we saw last time. But uh, notice that it, it seems relatively innocuous. It doesn't seem like it's not, you know, doesn't have all of this apostasy that I mentioned. But well, let's read it. It came to pass when men began to multiply the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. But as we studied last time, the words men and sons of God do make a difference in our understanding of what took place. Because you see, there had been this growing, falling away from God's standard. That's what apostasy is. Falling away from the standard of God or falling away from the truth of God. So uh, this, there, there was this growing falling away, this growing apostasy from God's standard, and that led to this final expression of perversion among men. We talked a little bit about that perversion last time. We're going to build upon it today. And this is marked out clearly for us as a beginning, or as beginning with, a population explosion. Now, men began to multiply on the face of the earth. That's what the text says. But multiplying on the face of the earth, having been born into sin, having been born as sinners, what does that lead to? It leads to a spiritual decay. And that spiritual decay which would lead to a shameless depravity. Notice the progression here. From decay to depravity, that escalated to a social dilemma. And eventually to a strong delusion. The social dilemma is something unnatural has entered into the picture among men. The delusion is, and we'll see that in the next couple of weeks, the delusion was that man accepted that. But I don't want to get too far ahead of us. 
because something new and startling had had to have happened to bring about the acceleration of wickedness that is evident in chapter 6. And what we find here in chapter 6 is a new dimension of lawlessness. A new dimension of lawlessness. You know, as I said last time, the word men in verse 1 stands generally for the whole human race. That, that's really not the whole problem here. But the sons of God in verse 2 are carefully distinguished from the generation of Adam. They are not the same. We stated that very clearly last week. We're going to build upon that this week. We learned that there was a particular view of the sons of God being the, the godly human offspring of Seth, while the daughters of men were the ungodly offspring from the line of Cain. In other words, just sons of Seth, daughters of Cain, they got together, and then God got upset and decided that their mixed marriages were the major sin. And we asked questions about that last week. Did it so happen that if these were in fact the sons of Seth, that they looked at the women of Seth, they looked at the daughters of Seth, and they said, my, they are really ugly. And they looked across the road and over to Cain's line, and they looked at the daughters of Cain, and they said, ooh, they were much more beautiful. Is that why God destroyed the whole earth with a flood? Doesn't make sense, does it? All we, all we said about that was that, you know, one group of sinners got together with another group of sinners, and they just produced more sinners. Well, they were already sinners. God wouldn't destroy the world for that. At least not in the way that he did. Now, again, there are those who hold to this view, and, and, and they can give you a lot of scriptural support, but it has a lot of major difficulties, that particular view. And it's all because of that phrase, the sons of God. Because you see... Last time we mentioned that term, the sons of God. The Hebrew is B'nai Elohim. B'nai Elohim is sons of God, and it's only used three times in Scripture, in the Hebrew Scriptures, other than this place here. All three of them are in the book of Job. We looked at them last week. Job 1, verse 6. Job 2, verse 1. Job 38, verse 7. We're not going to go look at them again, but you can look them up if you want. And in each case, it clearly speaks of spirit beings and more specifically, angels. Even more specifically, fallen angels. Remember that there were angels. We, we studied this through our study in the book of Isaiah and uh, touched upon it, and it's touched upon in Ezekiel as well. But in the book of Isaiah, we studied chapter 14, the fall of Lucifer. The raising up of, a, of, of, a, of, a, of an angel that uh, prided himself in his beauty and all and decided that he was going to uh, be above God and actually take the throne of God. That was his desire. He was cast out of heaven and a third of the angels went with him. We read that in the book of Revelation. So we, we see all of these things happen. So these are fallen angels that, uh, that is being spoken of. But nonetheless, they're called angels. And they are called sons of God. Why would angels be called sons of God? Simply because God created them directly. He created them directly. There's one other person in the Bible named, uh, called the son of God, and that's Adam. Why is he called the son of God? And we're not talking about the only begotten son of God who is Jesus Christ. That's totally different. That is totally different. Because he was, from, he, he was before the beginning and you know, he's eternal. 
We're not dealing with Jesus. We're dealing with Adam. God created Adam from the dust of the ground. Therefore, he is called in Luke chapter 3, the Son of God, in that genealogy. We saw that last week. Just review. So when we're dealing with the issue of the Son of God, or the sons of God, uh, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with angelic beings. There is also a similar form of this phrase, the word Bar Elohim, or the phrase Bar Elohim, which is uh, Son of God. And that's used in Daniel chapter 3. Most of you are familiar with the story of the, of the Hebrew children named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, while they were, uh, the Israelites were in, um, uh, in Babylon, that Nebuchadnezzar wanted everyone to bow to him and to his, to his uh, statue and his, uh, you know, his image. And these three Hebrew, Hebrew children did not do so. So Nebuchadnezzar got angry and furious and, and wanted them to be thrown into the hottest fire that was ever developed. And uh, so they took the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were ready to throw them into the, into the fire. As a matter of fact, they threw them into the fire. And the ones who threw them into the fire were consumed by the fire. But the three Hebrew children in the midst of the fire, but they're not being consumed. Now that's a miracle of God, isn't it? And Nebuchadnezzar goes and he looks into the fire and he sees a fourth. Let's read it, Daniel 3.25. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Bar Elohim, the Son of God. Now, that term could refer to an unfallen angel, or to an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. The theological word is a Christophany. The appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, in which case either would be acceptable. I truly believe it was Jesus that was among those three Hebrew children to comfort them in the midst of that fire. To come out, they don't, they don't even smell like smoke when they came out. That's how wonderful the presence of God is to show us that nothing that this world can do to us can ever taint us with its ugliness. God is a great God. So, this is another reason now why the angel view of Genesis 6 should be seriously considered. And it is that this was the view of the translators of the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Because when they translated Genesis 6, they rendered sons of God as angels. And it was also the view of other Jewish writers prior to the time of Christ. Jewish rabbinical scholars all believed that they were angels. They called them angels. Josephus, the great uh, historian, called them angels. Other ancient Jewish interpreters and even the earliest Christian uh, writers believed that they were angels. Genesis chapter 6. It wasn't until the late 200, 200 or 300 years after the birth of Christ, uh, about the year 200 to 300, and following that, that they began to take this view that, well, that's, that weren't, they weren't angels. They were, really, it was just the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain. <coughs> Excuse me, Chrysostom was one of those uh, Christian writers, and, and Augustine was another. But uh, that was almost 300 years after the other writers had all said these were angels. Now, the key book of these extra-biblical sources and I have to say that extra-biblical sources are sources outside of the canon of Scripture, the 66 books that we hold in our hands, which are the, are the canon of Scripture. 
they're extra biblical, but it doesn't mean that they're always wrong. And this is how we can prove that. The key of these extra biblical sources for what we're looking at today is a book called First Enoch, which is available to us through an Ethiopic text of which only three manuscripts survive. One reason we should pay attention to this is that Jude quoted from it as well. So I want you to turn to Jude, and Jude is a little one-chapter book right before the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible. So if you get to Revelation, just go back a page and you get to Jude. Okay? And notice what Jude quotes. He actually quotes from Enoch. He quotes from 1st Enoch. It's an extra-biblical book. It's not going to be found in your scriptures, but you can actually get it on the internet. You can look up 1st Enoch or Enoch, the book of Enoch, and, and uh, you know, Pastor James did it last night while well, I was teaching, and I don't recommend this for you to do, but, you know, he got his, his phone that goes into the internet. Said, book of Enoch. Wow, it's there. And, and, and all the things that you said, it was there. Good, don't use your phone anymore. Anyway. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> But this is what he said in Jude, Jude, uh, I was going to say Jude chapter 1. Well, it is chapter 1. It's the only one. So Jude 1 verse 14. <laughs> Jude quotes from Enoch. He says, And Enoch also the seventh from Adam, that is to distinguish that this is the, the Enoch that we spoke of earlier, that was the testimony of the presence of God. Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's quoting from First Enoch. Now, First Enoch is not considered an inspired book, but Jude is because it's in the canon of Scripture. So an inspired writer is taking a text that was not considered inspired, but nonetheless, he takes it and makes it inspired because he uses it in an inspired book. So what Enoch wrote in this text, called the book of Enoch, or first Enoch, concerning Genesis 6, this is what we're concerned about. What he wrote about Genesis 6 is quite revealing. Listen to what is found in the book of Enoch. And it came to pass, and listen how closely it relates to Genesis 6. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. Notice, men. Didn't talk about the lines of anyone, just men. They had beautiful daughters, comely daughters, and the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. They were in all 200. He mentions the number. Interesting. We don't know. It's not inspired, so we don't know if that's true or not. But they were in all 200. They took unto themselves wives. They began to go in unto them. Defiled themselves with them. Taught them charms and enchantments, which gets me to realize they were the fallen angels. They became pregnant, speaking of the wives, and bare great giants. Where have we seen giants mentioned already? Verse 4 of Genesis 6. There arose much godlessness. They committed fornication. 
led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. That's in the book of First Enoch. So with that in mind, one very important question we need to ask is this. If Jude clearly had Enoch in view in verses 14 and 15 of his letter, how can he not also have Enoch in view in verse 6, just 8 and 9 verses earlier? So if you're still in Jude, go up to verse 6. Because notice what Jude says. Again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, and the angels, interesting, the angels which kept not their first estate, the words first estate is a Greek word arche, and we'll explain that in a moment, but left their own habitation. That word you remember from last week. Habitation was the word oikaterion, which means habitation, home, abode, whatever. They left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Now, it's interesting how the Greek word arche, first estate, is translated in other English translations. You may have one of these, so when I read this, you'll understand. The angels which kept not their first estate, they did not keep their proper domain, that's the New King James. They did not keep their position of authority, English Standard Version. They did not keep their own position, their own domain, the limits. Notice this, they did not keep the limits of, of, of authority that God gave them. They did not keep the position of authority. They did not keep, as it says in the Darby translation of the New Testament, they did not keep their original state. Wow. That's what it means when the angels did not keep their first estate. They left their own oikaterion. They, they, and what happened when they did this? God judged them and incarcerated them for abandoning their own abode, their own home, their own oikaterion, their own dwelling place. That's not talking about a house. It's talking about who they were, what they were created as. They left it. And this carries our inquiry to Second Peter once again. So now with your other finger, move it over to Second Peter. Uh, and by the way, Second Peter and Jude are closely related in that most uh, of Second Peter chapter 2 is parallel to Jude. Do your homework tonight and read Second Peter 2, all of it, and then read Jude, all of it. And you'll notice how similar they are. Well... There are parallels also in the other two chapters as well. But, but this should cause us to think that Peter and Jude were well aware of the angel interpretation. They were well aware that Genesis chapter 6 was not just dealing with sons of Seth and daughters of Cain. So, Peter uses similar language as Jude does in referring to the angels that sin. So now are you Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5? Remember we read verse 5 earlier. Let's add verse 4 because it really enhances our understanding. If God spared not the angels that sinned, which angels is, is Peter talking about? Is he talking about the angels that decided to follow Lucifer out of heaven when Lucifer fell in eternity past, before the world was created? Is that what he's talking about there? Well, let's look at the context. He says... If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world. 
but save Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now we have the context. The angels are the angels of Genesis 6. How could that not be? If he mentions in verse 5 immediately that the world would be devastated by this worldwide flood. And the only one saved was Noah and his family. The preacher of righteousness. And we're just as much in the same realm. We're just as much in the same realm in First Peter when, when the apostle writes. And remember we read this earlier too. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Spirits in prison? By the way, the word spirits there is exactly what it means. Angelic beings are spirits. And they were in prison. In prison. Remember, they were incarcerated. In chains of darkness. Jesus goes and he preaches unto these spirits, which sometime were disobedient. Notice now we get to know who they are. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. What's the context now? The spirits in prison placed there because... Something happened in the days of Noah. They did something that wasn't for them to do. And by the way, this is not this preaching of Christ going to them to preach. Uh, many believe that that was done in the time that Jesus' body was buried before he rose again from the dead. But uh, this was not him offering a second chance to these fallen angels. There are too many verses of Scripture that would contradict that. So he wasn't there to preach to them, to give them a second chance. He was there to proclaim a victory over sin, over death, and over the devil to those demons. And his resurrection would be the, the high hallmark of that. He proclaimed to them, I came as victory over sin and over death and over, the, and, and over the devil. Please understand, they had defied the limits set by God. They had defied the limits set by God when they went after strange flesh. There's a term that we're going to need to come back to. They went after strange flesh and so the Lord incarcerated them in a place called Tartarus. That is the word that is used for that word hell. Tartarus, a place more terrible than Hades. And this leads us to another reason for preferring the supernatural interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. What Jude goes on to say in his epistle. Going back to Jude verse, verses 6 and 7 now, notice what he says. We're adding something here, by the way, and it's very, it's very significant and very important for us to, to, to see the tie-in here. The angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. They're in prison, so we know which angels they are, where they are, and why they're there. But then notice this in verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow, listen. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner 
giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. He uses Sodom and Gomorrah, which actually happened, by the way, after the flood. Not before the flood. After the flood. In other words, did anybody learn a lesson for this gross sin? Okay. So now, the wicked angels did something similar then. Similar to what those in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah did. Because those in Sodom and Gomorrah indulged themselves in gross sexual immorality because they were going after strange flesh. In like manner, Jude says, they were fallen angels who gave themselves to gross immorality by going after strange flesh. They abandoned their proper habitation and gave themselves over to a gross kind of sexual evil. And so we see the reason for the incarceration of these angels in Tartarus. But I want you to consider also what Peter writes in his second letter. Because he also uses this as an example. Second Peter 2, verses 4-6 through 6, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Notice this, verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. The same exact reference that Jude uses as an example for the kind of judgment that would come because of a gross wickedness in going after strange flesh. Now, of course, objections have arisen concerning these issues. There are those who say that it is impossible for angels to have sexual relations with human women and to father children by them. It's just impossible. It doesn't happen. We know that much about angels. You see, this objection presupposes more about angelic abilities than we know. Do we know what angels can and can't do? Whether they're obedient to God or not. Do we know? You see, the Bible has recorded when angels appear visibly to men. It's been recorded. As a matter of fact, Abraham, in the book of Genesis, actually ate with them. And they ate with him. They were angels. As a matter of fact, turn to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. As you're turning there, I'm just going to real quickly just kind of refer to the first couple of verses. It tells us that the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mammon, that the Lord himself appeared unto him. But that there were other, others that were involved there as well. And, uh, but, uh, so that gives you a, a little bit of an idea then, you know, of, of what we've got going on here. The Lord comes to visit. There are some beings with him, men, as it were, present. So what does that get Abraham to do? Well, he was a very hosp hospitable person. And so Abraham hastened, it tells us in verse 6, 
uh, hastened unto the tent of Sarah uh, and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran into the herd, he fetched the calf tender and good, gave it unto a young man, and he hasted to dress it, and he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. I'll tell you what, the cafe is going to be open here in just a little bit. And so, and so he says it all before them, and then it says he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. They did eat. They're angelic beings, but they eat. Do we know what angels can do and, not, and can't do? Do we really know fully? Well, here's where it gets sticky. Later, they appear to the inhabitants of Sodom. Chapter 19. They appeared in perfect man-like form. So much so that the Sodomites were attempting to take these men for what can only be considered as homosexual purposes. Just have to read the text. Genesis 19. They wanted them. Bring us those men, Lot. Lot did everything to protect these men. They were angels. They caused blindness to come upon all those men that were waiting outside that door. Another objection comes from a verse of Scripture in Matthew where we hear Jesus say this. Matthew 22, verses 29 and 30. Uh, this is a time when, when uh, the Sadducees, it was a sect of Jews that did not believe in the resurrection of the body. They came to Jesus and tried to trap him uh, with, with, a, with a kind of a, an example of saying, well, you know, if this person who has been married to all these, all these men, you know, if the, uh, you know uh, married, I don't know, seven men, you know, uh, to, to whom will she be married in, in heaven? You know, it was, a, it was, a, it was an absurd uh, kind of a statement to make to Jesus to, to kind of trap him as to the resurrection issue. But notice what Jesus said. I, was, I, I add verse 29 to this because I want you to see what Jesus said to these guys who are supposed to know the Scriptures. He says, uh, You do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. He could have just said, You don't know the Scriptures. But he says, You don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God because you see, our God has the power to resurrect the dead. Our God has the power to raise the dead into new life. As a matter of fact, He has the power to raise up a whole nation of people, which He did again to Israel. A whole nation of dry bones raises up and He puts skin upon them. And all of a sudden now, they're a new nation again. God has the power, doesn't He? So this is what He says to them. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. You see, they're as the angels of God in heaven. And a lot of people will try to give you the idea that, that what God means is angels are just sexless. Hmm. So understand that this is not equivalent to saying that the angels are sexless, since people in the resurrection will, will surely retain their own personal identity, whether male or female. I mean, that's, that's how it is. it's going to be in heaven. I mean, we're going to know who we are in heaven. We're going to be who we are, you know, but we're going to be different. We'll change, but our, our identity doesn't change. And add to this the fact that when angels are described in Scripture, they do appear as men, and the pronoun he, or the pronoun he, is always used in, re in reference to them. And so when Jesus said that the angels of God in heaven do not marry... 
This does not mean that those cast out of heaven were incapable of doing so. Now you have to understand that it wasn't God's will or intention that angels mix in such a way that uh, with human women, but these wicked angels weren't interested or concerned with obedience to God's will. The fallen angels weren't concerned with obedience to God. In fact, it was more than likely their purpose to thwart God's will that this group of sons of God engaged in this illegal invasion of the bodies of the sons of men. And, and we haven't even touched upon the, the, the issues of incubus and succubus, which is the possession of bodies by, by demons. And so this leads us now to verse 4. Verses 3 and 4, I should say. It leads us to verses 3 and 4 of, of Genesis 6. I hope, I hope that this has been, you know, kind of laid down pretty clearly up to this point. Verse 3 says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. By the way, this does not mean that God was saying, I'm tired of men being 900, 800, 600 years old. Uh, they'll only be 120 years old. That's not what it means. Remember the context of everything. His days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. We're going to be dealing with the giants next time. That's, that's the bone that I'm going to have to bring you back with next time. But the result of all of this apostasy and perversion would be the flood, the worldwide flood. The Lord had been patient for centuries, but those ultimate sins led to the final exhaustion of the patience of God. There does come a time, by the way, you know, God is patient for so long but God has a plan. God has a purpose. And He has a timeline. And there will come a time when God says this is enough. This is why we need to study this. So what He says is, My spirit shall not always strive with men, for that He's also flesh. Yet His day shall be 120 years. Only 120 more years, and God would act. You see, he would act just in time for Noah to build the ark. He says, I'm giving you 120 more years to get right. You see, God could have said 120 days or 120 months. He said 120 years. Noah builds the ark in that time. And he issued one final plea and warning to his generation. The ark was big enough. We're going to talk about this pretty soon. The ark was big enough to hold a lot of people along with the animals. But only eight people went into the ark. The Lord is coming again. He said, be ready. As the days of Noah were, 
so shall the, son, the coming of the Son of Man be. You see, next time we're going to focus our attention on the Nephilim, the giants, and the godless activity in the days of Noah. But, folks, there's continuous activity that is godless in our world today. It's all around us. Possibly more than has ever taken place in all the history of man. Listen to what Paul states, and I want to do this very quickly here, but turn to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy in the New Testament. Because I just want to leave you with these thoughts. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, it says, Now the Spirit express, uh, speaketh expressly, that in the latter times, which, by the way, we're living in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. It is always sad for me to hear of people that walk away from God and just... You know, whether they grew up in the church or whatever, you know, just they, they just walk away. This is apostasy here. Departing from the faith. But notice the next phrase, giving heed to seducing spirits. Seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. People are giving heed to these things today. Pastor Bob Ortega and Calvary Chapel Las Cruces, this is past Friday, we're together in a meeting with the other pastors getting ready for this conference and and he showed us a, 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 it was actually a copy because the police department in Las Cruces have the original now. But there was, it was a, a large piece of paper that was put on a cardboard that was stuck upon the door of, of, of the church. Or I think it was on his mailbox. But, but it, was, it was there in the front part of, of the church in Calvary, uh, Calvary Chapel, Las Cruces. And it was, it was, it was written out in, in, you know, kind of just in hand, right? A big, big piece of thing that, that was done by the Luciferian Liberation Front. A Satanist group that was threatening the church and writing all kinds of weird and, 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 and really uh, blasphemous things about Jesus Christ. They used the name Jesus Christ in an acrostic, you know, and, and did you know, with all the letters of Jesus Christ, put all of these terms that were not certainly not edifying to anyone and, and really kind of trying to scare the church. We don't get scared that easy, folks. We serve the God who created them. And made them. We have nothing to fear here. The fact of the matter is, that's the way life is today. That's what we have to deal with in the ministry. That's what we have to deal with as believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, listen, men are going to hate you. Realize this, if they hated me first, they're going to hate you too. And they hated him first. But that's okay. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. <clears throat> it goes on to say, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. We can go on and on about that particular passage. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll close with this. This know also... Paul says that in the last days, perilous times will come. I would think that we're already there. Perilous times are here. What we saw happen last week in Arizona and Tucson makes it very clear that perilous times have come. What happened last week done by a person that everybody says, well, he's a mental case. Well, you know what? That was demonic. I don't care what anybody says. That was demonic. Perilous times have come. You can't set up a table outside of a, of, a, of a Safeway grocery store. 
and not wonder that if somebody's going to come and, and do what they did. Perilous times will come for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. By the way, all of these characteristics belong to Satan, to Lucifer himself. Blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. May I ask you one question before we close our study today? If all of our pleasures, and by the way, we can thank God for all the things that we have in this life. God has blessed us tremendously. But if all of those things were taken away, would we still be able to worship God? Of course we could. You know why? Because He's our pleasure. He's our treasure. He's the one that is our life. Not the things that we own, the things that we have. We don't even own them when you think about it. They still all belong to Him. He gave them to us. They're just on loan. We're not taking anything with us when we go. Whether we go by death or by rapture, we're not going to take anything with us. We are going to get something new. A new body. So that we can be in, pres in the presence of God in heaven. Hey, I need that right now. Man. You understand? These are serious things that affect us now. That's why we're looking at this. As in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. I want you guys ready to see Jesus. I want you ready to receive Jesus when He comes. And I want you ready to be received by Jesus when He comes. Amen? Let's pray.